0: When we look out at the distant universe, one of the most remarkable things we can notice is that the farther away we look, the more and more pronounced the differences become from how our universe appears today versus how it appeared in the distant past. When we look at galaxies, the ones today are larger, more evolved, and contain older populations of stars than the ones at great distances. The galaxy clusters, they go back a certain distance, and then beyond that there are none. Same with the first stars, same with neutral atoms. The farther back we look, the more uniform and less evolved the universe is. Yet when we go back, all the way to the very limits of what our farthest telescopes can take us to, of what the most distant reaches in the galaxies are, the most distant gas clouds of all, show us the universe as it was before any stars had formed. From this, we can learn all sorts of information about the early universe and the first stages of the Big Bang. How does all this play out? Where are we today? And where are we headed in the future? Find out on this edition of the Starts With a Bang Podcast. To help us understand how all of this works, I've got a wonderful guest on the program today to introduce you to. I'd like to welcome Dr. John O'Mara, the chief scientist of the W.M. Keck Observatory and one of the pioneers of the first measurements of the first candidate gas for being truly pristine, for being truly left over from the Big Bang itself. John, welcome to the program.
1: Hey, Ethan. Great to talk to you. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Oh, it's a pleasure to have you here. So when we look out at the universe today, none of the gas we see today is pristine. All of it has been affected by the stars and galaxies and all this generational processing that's occurred. How, if that's the universe we inhabit today, can we ever hope in principle to find populations of gas that have never been polluted by previous generations of stars?
1: Well, that's a fun question. You know, like like you said, just about everywhere we look, and just about every when we look, with giant telescopes on the ground, telescopes in space, every sort of technique we can find, we always see the signature of star formation and stellar history. We always see the heavy element detritus of stars going through their lives. Even if we look back as about as far as we possibly can with the telescope facilities we have today, we find those heavy elements. So to look for the parts of the universe for those for those hints. Of, of one of the, the, the natural outcomes of the Big Bang model of cosmology, which is gas that's been basically left below, uh, alone since the Big Bang, gas which should have only hydrogen, helium, and a trace amount of lithium in it from, from Big Bang nucleosynthesis. To look for those, we have to be both tricky and extremely lucky. And so the tricky part comes in in recognizing that we can search vast quantities of, of gaseous clouds throughout the universe in a technique we call quasar absorption line spectroscopy.
0: All right, so let's let's back up for a second. So you introduced a few new terms that maybe everyone's not familiar with. When when I learned about quasars, I learned that they were this they were sort of this misnomer acronym that quasars actually came from the letters Q S R S which stood for quasi stellar radio source. And this is just because in the early stages of astronomy We'd look out at the distant universe, and we'd see these regions in the sky that had nothing in them. They appeared to have no stars, no galaxies, and yet from this distant location, bam, there was all of this radio light, all of this loud radio light coming towards us. And as we got further into the future, we learned, oh, actually, some of them are associated with galaxies. We just need to look deeper. And now we've put together this picture where quasars appear to be these enormous black holes at the centers of galaxies. These are black holes, some of them thousands of times the mass of the supermassive black hole at the center of the Milky Way. Matter falls into them, gets funneled into two jets, and sometimes... Uh, We can see the accelerated matter that produces this radiation, this radio light. Sometimes they produce light in other portions of the spectrum all the way into the X-ray, and we see those. So when you're talking about quasar absorption light, you're talking about finding these ultra-distant quasars, these ultra-distant radio sources in the universe, and looking by chance, for any gas clouds that happen to be between us and that quasar directly along that line of sight.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, quasars themselves are extremely interesting things that I relegate down to the simple status of distant light bulb. There are people who spend their whole lives studying quasars, and I just use them as a background light source. I like to think of it in the following way. I'm doing science in silhouette. Um, When we try to understand the the surroundings of galaxies or or the earliest clouds of intergalactic gas in the early history of the universe We have a problem neither of those things make much light themselves But we have the advantage that atomic physics doesn't necessarily care atomic physics says that you know atoms will happily absorb light at the correct energies just as well as they will emit light at the correct energies so if you have a bright background source that's emitting a lot of light, and along the way that light impinges upon a cloud of gas, the atoms in it can absorb the light at the correct frequencies, the correct energies, and you see an absorption line. And it doesn't matter how bright that gas cloud is. It's, it's completely independent of how bright that cloud is. It's doing that absorption no matter what. And we use that trick, that science and silhouette, to determine the properties of gas clouds across the entire extent of the universe. And when you get farther and farther away, thanks to the expansion of the universe, you're you're impinging upon many more and more clouds. So a a quasar that is relatively nearby only has a a handful of absorption-lying clouds along the way, but a quasar that is many... Billions of light years distance 10 billion light years distant will have many hundreds if not thousands of absorption clouds So that's the trick that we use we leverage statistics To look at as many of them as possible and some of them have enough gas content to be able to characterize not only the hydrogen in those clouds which is the fundamental observable we have but any heavy element absorption that might be there we look for clouds that have a lot of stuff in them so that we can hope to measure heavy element um, absorption as well if if it's there and for many decades we've been observing these things and we've been trying to use them for a variety of techniques um, and, and along the way we've been quietly, Building up a database of many hundreds of thousands of these systems and looking at their heavy element content. Can I uh,
0: can I can I jump in and try and explain this back to you to make sure everyone's on the same page? Sure. All right. So the way I look at it, you you and people working on quasar absorption systems, you are you are some kind of cosmic Nazgul. You are you are doing science in the shadows over here. That you have this distant light source and. In the way of these distant light sources are gas clouds and gas clouds can show up at any distance and so most quasars that you look at actually have multiple intervening gas clouds at different distances because the universe is expanding these gas clouds are going to have not only different distances but they're going to show up at different redshifts so you said you use hydrogen to sort of as sort of like the standard because hydrogen is the most abundant gas in the universe. It's the most abundant element in the universe. So when you have background light coming through shining on the hydrogen, you're going to get, bam, this big hydrogen absorption feature, this big trough corresponding to those electron transitions that a hydrogen atom can make. So when you see a hydrogen atom nearby with the characteristic spectra of its absorption lines, you can measure what frequencies or wavelengths those lines show up at and say, oh, this gas cloud is this far away. And if you have a super distant quasar, maybe you'll be lucky and you'll have a super distant gas cloud and you'll detect the hydrogen signature in there. And once you've got the hydrogen, then you can start looking in the other gas clouds, in all the gas clouds and say, well, what sort of other elements are present is that right yeah so
1: that's right i mean what what we do is we we look for these these giant clouds of 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 hydrogen gas and when there's enough hydrogen gas there we typically associate that with the outskirts of galaxy galaxies are collections of gas stars and dust and dark matter but whenever you see a lot of hydrogen gas it's usually associated with the outskirts or the inner parts of a galaxy and what we've been doing over decades is to ask how much hydrogen is there and how many hel- heavy elements are also in that, in those clouds, because that's telling you the star formation history of those galaxies. We're basically going back in time trying to determine how galaxies have formed their stars but an important piece and you alluded to this in your introduction is that if you're going farther and farther back in time in principle you should be looking at histories of the universe when there were fewer and fewer stars fewer heavy elements out there because there were fewer stars to create them in the first place so ideally you could go all the way back to the first galaxies in the universe the first stars in the universe and you would be finding Regions of the universe with no heavy elements in them at all. And the interpretation of that would be you are looking so far back in time that you haven't seen any stellar processing. You haven't seen any production of heavy elements like oxygen and carbon and silicon that we typically see in stars.
0: And that means, like you said, we also have to get lucky because we know, at least from theory right, which is, you know, my specialty for better or worse, um, that the very first stars that form, they shouldn't have formed the way stars today do. You shouldn't have these, you know, oh, you get a cloud of gas and it collapses, and most of the stars you make are these M dwarf stars, these red dwarf stars that are maybe only 25 to 40 percent the mass of the sun. Most of them In the very early stages, when you only have the pristine elements left over from the Big Bang, they should have been on the order of about 10 solar masses on average. And in a Blade Runner-esque twist of fate, the more massive your star is, the much, much more luminous it gets, which means the much faster it burns through its fuel and the much shorter its lifetime is. So if we want to get a population of stars that we catch in the act of having no head Heavy elements around it, we need to be really lucky to get in there fast, not only when it's first created, but before those first stars get destroyed.
1: Yes, that's right. And it gets even worse. We need to get even luckier. Because the the technique that I mentioned, the quasar absorption line technique, doesn't work at the period of cosmic history when those first stars formed. We're, We're looking too far back in time. And uh, there, first of all, there aren't many quasars, if any quasars at all, at that point in time in cosmic history. So we don't have the background light bulb. And even worse, we're looking so far back in time that the expansion of the universe is working against us in terms of absorption. As, as you look farther and farther back in time, these things get smushed more and more together in their spectra because we're looking through so much volume of the universe That all of the absorption adds together and you just get to see nothing, no light from the quasar at all. So it's impossible to disentangle one absorption system from another. Instead of seeing a little series of dips from individual clouds, you just see a trough of nothingness. And this is a big problem in trying to understand the early universe. So you have to get lucky in multiple ways. You have to find those regions of the universe where you can do it at all. And you have to find it at a time in cosmic history when you can make the measurement at all. And so that's why it took so long for us to eventually find a small set of systems way out in the distant universe, but not so far out as when we expect the first stars to form on masse. And we got lucky and found a couple of them.
0: Yeah. And that was, that was a, key paper, like I, I would say that's a revolutionary paper that you co-authored back in 2011 where you discovered not just one of these systems but two of them, and you did, as you allude to, you got extremely lucky because what you observed in these two systems and, and they both observed very similar things, is you had a quasar that was very far away, but not so far away that it was hidden behind the neutral atom's presence in the universe, right? Because if we go all the way back to the Big Bang and run the clock forward, we started out in this super hot dense state where everything is ionized and it's too hot to form neutral atoms. And then finally, a little less than half a million years into the universe, it finally cools down enough due to the red shifting of, of the radiation in the universe and the expansion of space that you can form neutral atoms. Then it takes tens to hundreds of millions of years to Start forming the first stars, and then it takes about half a billion years until you've formed enough stars that you've reionized all those neutral atoms, that you've produced enough ultraviolet light to kick those electrons off of the atoms they're bound to, so that you become transparent to visible light. If you go back before that, you run into this problem of absorption that we call the Gunn Peterson trough, where everything that's, you know, shorter in wavelength just gets swallowed. Everything that's short wavelength than the light that's being emitted by the quasar just gets swallowed. So what you have to do is you have to wait until the universe is neutral and, or sorry, until the universe is ionized, then you produce the quasar light. And then what you want is you want to find this cloud of gas that is sort of on the underdog side of things, that it it didn't have enough mass to form stars early on like the most overdense regions did. And maybe it doesn't even have enough mass to collapse and form stars in an average amount of time. It has to be slightly below average, but it needs to be surrounded by even more below-average regions so that it can someday pull this matter in, collapse, and work towards forming stars, but not quite get there by time the quasar light hits it. So that's how I understand how lucky you have to get to do it, and you got lucky twice
1: yeah i don't I don't know how we managed to pull that off. It turns out in in the intermediate time, just as recently as you know a a, a paper that we're we're advertising very recently, we've now gotten ourselves up to three, so we got lucky one more time. But we've also been starting to systematically look for these types of systems where we have some tricks on um, on how we might try to find more of them, and we've gotten much better at looking at sort of the statistics of these things in general. And we've found some other systems that are tantalizingly close to absorption-free in terms of heavy elements but still have a tiny trace. And the reason why those are interesting is because the ratio of the elements in them, say carbon to silicon or silicon to oxygen, could be a neat test of how those first stars in the universe formed. You mentioned already that the first stars in the universe are very different than the average stars that are forming today. And part of their difference is in the ratio of the heavy elements they produce. And so what we're really trying to do with our work these days is not only find these pristine systems, which are a lovely... Verification of some of the basic cosmic history that we have, but we're taking it to the next step Which is to try to find systems which are just slightly tainted not quite pristine Just barely polluted enough that we can measure those heavy elements and try to get their ratios to truly try to understand How those first stars exploded in large part because we don't have the facilities yet online to observe those first stars in the first place
0: so that's That brings up a lot of interesting points. So before we ever formed any stars, all we should have are the elements left over from the Big Bang. And these are elements that normally formed in the first three or four minutes after the Big Bang and not afterwards. That's the only time where we have the right temperatures and densities to it undergo nuclear fusion in the early universe that we expect based on the theoretical calculations we do and the observations we make of what's in the universe that by mass the universe should be about 75% hydrogen, about 25% normal helium, helium-4, and then there should be a little bit of deuterium, which is a heavy isotope of hydrogen that, that's about... 0.01 percent. And there should be about that same amount of helium-3, which is a light isotope of helium with only one neutron instead of two. Again, about 0.01 percent. And then there should be some lithium left over. That's that's a few parts in a billion, like less than one part in a million lithium. And that's really it. You know, if you're a fan of the Tom Lehrer Elements song, you know, there's hydrogen and helium, lithium, beryllium, and so on. Um, If you were to do that for the elements that formed right after the Big Bang, it would be a really short song because you'd have hydrogen and helium, deuterium, and helium-3 and lithium, and that's it, and that's your whole song. So... What you're saying is when we have these distant quasars, the hope is we can find these pristine clouds of gas that can that have never formed stars, and you've got three so far, and three is a huge number. Like that's that's monumental achievement right there. Um and we've got three that show the hydrogen and the helium and none of the other elements you produce in stars. No carbon, no oxygen, no silicon, no iron, no sulfur, no anything. Just hydrogen and helium. And and maybe we can someday detect those other isotopes and that lithium when our observations get a little better. But now you want to one-up that and you want to find... Not only this pristine gas before you, before you form the first stars, before you form these population three stars, you also want to find those, those in-between ones that have formed that first generation of stars, those population three stars, but haven't yet made that second generation of stars, but haven't yet made those stars that are going to start enriching the interstellar medium even further that are going to start having those low masses and are going to start, you know, basically being what we call population two stars. These are the kinds of stars we find in globular clusters. So tell us about that. Tell us about what we're finding from those studies and what that's teaching us about the universe.
1: Well, unfortunately, the uh, the statistics of the systems where we can try to do that that method that you described is is, is currently a statistic of one. It may be one and a half um, because we've really only want, found one slam dunk system that that I would kind of you know jokingly call population 2.5 gas which was likely polluted only by the first generation of stars, but it's unclear if it came from, just one nearby star or a whole series of population 3 stars colliding exploding and polluting their environments and it this is this is very new game for us um, and and part of the reason why it's an, it, it's a new game and it's been taking us so long is is simply because quasars are rare on the sky we don't have a whole lot of them that are bright enough to be able to do The observation and the observation at the level of fidelity that you need to to be able to, to measure extremely weak absorption. You either need a very, very bright source, a very, very big telescope or lots and lots of time to look at it. And in most cases, you need all three. And the ability to get all three of those to work together for you is is somewhat limited. So we've been going after this. In, in a combination of theoretical work where we create universes inside of computers and make predictions for the number of times we should see things like this. And, we're, and a number of my colleagues are working on things like that right now. and It's a lot of fun. And we're also beginning to think about how to build new telescopes and new facilities to try to play this game because we've kind of run out of bright objects on the sky that we can use right now. But if you've got a bigger eye or you've got more time, or you've got different techniques. You can go after this and really try to do it even better than three. One great day, we might get up to ten or a hundred. But you know, today is not that day because we don't yet have the tools.
0: No, and that's and that's an important point. You know, we are. We're talking right now about the very frontiers of observational astronomy. It reminds me of of this famous quote by Edwin Hubble when he said, With increasing distance, our knowledge fades and fades rapidly. Eventually, we reach the dim boundary, the utmost limits of our telescopes. There, we measure shadows, and we search among ghostly errors of measurement for landmarks that are scarcely more substantial. The search will continue, not until the empirical resources are exhausted need we pass on to the dreamy realms of speculation and Hubble wrote that in his book The Realm of the Nebulae but yet here we are having pushed those frontiers much, much farther than Hubble probably ever dreamed of, and yet we're still there. We're still right up against the frontiers looking at, well, here's the limits of what we know. We've discovered a whopping three pristine systems. We've discovered a whopping one, as you say, maybe one and a half, and I won't press you on the half, of these population 2.5 systems that look like they formed population 3 stars, but don't yet have population 2 stars in them. And then, what are we doing? Well, we we can survey all of the sky as much as we can, and we can look at the distant quasars that we found so far, but at some point, you have to say, well, we can do the theoretical work we can do we can run the simulations we can run but if we really want to know more if we really want to understand more not just about oh what are the predictions of the big bang and what are the predictions of the elements and what are the elements we observe that are pristine and how well do they line up and and the answer to all of those is it's spectacular big bang nucleosynthesis is one of the great success stories of 20th and 21st century astronomy. This is this is a slam dunk and one of the huge challenges along with the cosmic microwave background and the large-scale structure of the universe for any alternative theory of cosmology besides the Big Bang in the context of general relativity. But we are never satisfied. We are never satisfied with what we know now. We always want to push to that next frontier. We always want to push to those more distant gas clouds, that bigger sample size, so that we're not dealing with three or one and a half uh, points of data. We We want as much as we can get to have as deep an understanding of possible of not only what the universe was like when it was born, but to understand how it grew up along every step of the way. So to that end, I know one of the most exciting projects you're involved with right now is to look at the potential as far as what sorts of observatories might we build in the future to increase our knowledge of the early formative stages of the universe. And I know there are a bunch of projects you're very excited about. Would you like to tell us about some of them today?
1: Sure. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick my favorite one, although there are, as you, as you implied, there are a number of really exciting things on the horizon to push that envelope farther, to look farther back in time, and more importantly, to look fainter, uh, at fainter things, uh, more representative of the real, the real population of stuff out there. Um, because, you know, when we look at quasars, or when we look at the brightest galaxies, we're looking at the tip of the tip of the iceberg, and we're really not trying... We're not doing a good job yet of understanding the average stuff out there in the universe. And so, you know, we want to build new facilities. And And I'm involved in in, in two. One is the 30-meter the telescope project, which is a, a very boring name, describes exactly what it is, a 30-meter telescope. This is a ground-based facility, which would have significantly more collecting area than, than the current uh, King of the Hill, which is the Keck Observatory, um, at least in the optical and the near-infrared. But the, the other one that I've spent a very large amount of my time on the last few years and the one that I'm most excited about right now is to take something about the size of Keck, if not larger, and Keck is a 10-meter telescope, and then to put it in space. So this is the idea of the Louvoir mission concept. This is one of the four large mission concepts. NASA has commissioned a, a, a team of, of, of people to to study the, the scientific and technological challenges for and, and Louvoir is is yet another boring name. It stands for the Large Ultraviolet Optical Infrared Surveyor. And that's sort of where the boredom ends because we're talking about in our in our prime mission concept, we're talking about placing a fifteen meter telescope in space. And the advantages of that are immense because you have a the collecting area significantly larger than the largest telescopes on the ground currently. But B, you have access to all the things that only a Hubble has access to now, like the ultraviolet light that's desperate to tell us the history of atoms throughout the universe, right? Atoms love to shine in ultraviolet light. In fact, most atoms prefer to do that, shining in ultraviolet light. But the atmosphere keeps us from, from getting that news, from hearing that story. So Louvoir would take something more powerful than Keck, put it in space and go after ultraviolet light all far across the universe. And it would allow us to see many of those first galaxies that the James Webb Space Telescope may get hints of, but James Webb will see the brightest of those populations, whereas Louvre will be able to see much, much smaller galaxies, much, much fainter galaxies, many of the early building blocks of galaxies way out across most of cosmic time. A good figure of merit for something like Louvoir is that Louvoir would be able to get the light and discern the shape of a star cluster anywhere in the visible universe that it could see. Things as small as 60 parsecs, it could resolve anywhere across the, the, the observable universe that it could see out into the, at least up into the infrared light. If it's too far away, then it, it redshifts out of the infrared and we're, we would need a different type of facility for that. But Louvoir is going to be large enough and its instruments powerful enough to really go after the faint, abundant population of galaxies all the way across 10 to 13 billion years of cosmic time.
0: And that's that's wonderful. I mean this is this is just this is just an astronomer's dream machine when you talk about something like Louvoir. Even something like a 30 meter ground based telescope is a dream as well. TMT at the 30 meter telescope is not the only one. In fact, I I'm willing to bet, and I bet you would too at this point, that the two other 30 meter class telescopes, the giant Magellan telescope and the European Extremely Large Telescope, which are about 25 and 39 meters respectively, um, are both slated for completion in sort of the middle of the next decade. And so, um, you know, If TMT winds up getting built in a timely fashion, we'll have three, if not, we'll have two ground-based next-generation telescopes with more light-gathering power, more advanced adaptive optics, and greater imaging capabilities than anything that's ever come before from the ground. Meanwhile, in space, you know, still state-of-the-art as far as what's seen the most distant galaxies, what's seen things at the highest resolution, that's still Hubble. Hubble's still undefeated in that realm from space. Now, with James Webb, like you say, we're going to see better things, farther things, but it's really only going to get those brightest ones. And before we go into the specifics of the telescopes... Um, I want to bring up what we call in astronomy. We call it Malmquist bias, and this is just the very simple statement that when you're looking to something in the distant universe or anywhere in the universe, and you're limited by the magnitude of what you can see, your brightness limited for what you can see, you're not going to see a representative sample of what's out there. And a great example of this are the naked eye stars you can see in. The sky. If you were to look at the stars in the sky right with your naked eye, you can see maybe 6,000 of them. And of those, a huge fraction of them are these bright blue, massive stars, what we classify as the O and B class stars. Right, Stars come in seven different classes, basically O, B, A, F, G, K, M, and you can come up with whatever mnemonic you like for that. But O and B stars are the rarest of all stars. If we were to look at all of the stars in the galaxy, less than one Fifth of 1%, less than 0.02% are O and B stars. And yet of the naked eye stars in the sky, um, if you look at them and are like, hey, what percentage of those are O stars or B stars? It's It's significant. It's somewhere like 10, 20% of them. And that's all because of bias. The distant universe is pretty similar to that, isn't it?
1: Yes, in fact, if, if not more so biased than, than, than what we see with our eyes on the sky. Um, I, I, I tend to think of it as, as if, if I'm standing on, on a balcony looking at people walking around through Grand Central Station. You know, right now what we've seen with our telescopes are the, the random 103-year-old grandmother that walks through the room. Um, and, and we're missing that, you know, the 10,000 other people who went through Grand Central. And so it behooves us to, to get better eyes, to get uh, better techniques, to really go after the average population, because I can guarantee you the average person walking through Grand Central Station is not 103 years old. Um, and that's, that's really why we want to be building these bigger facilities, in part, because A, they would let us go deeper and farther for the really, really, really distant things that would still be bright, we'll be able to see most of the big iceberg with something like Louvoir. And that's in part because of its size. It's about uh, 40 times the collecting area that Hubble has today. So you get quite a lot more photons coming down the bucket, but also because it has much more advanced instrumentation, right? The most recent uh, pieces of instrumentation went into Hubble, you know, 10 years ago, and, um, that, that instrumentation was developed five to 10 years before that. So when we're talking about the telescopes of the 2030s, we're going to be talking about instruments that can do significantly more in their detectors and in their optics than we can with telescopes today. And in some cases, when you put all those things together, We're talking about a telescope that can be a thousand times more powerful than Hubble. And that's what you're going to be needing if you want to be going after the general population of the first galaxies in the universe.
0: Well, that's that's really incredible, because what you're talking about now isn't just looking at uh, a handful, if you're lucky, of of objects that tell you what things were like back in the early stages. You're instead talking about getting large sample sizes of starting to do um almost big data with, these early, early galaxies and these early star-forming regions within galaxies. And maybe it sounds like if we're really lucky, we won't have to use these clever contrived techniques of saying, oh, we've got these bright distant quasars, and we want to probe what things are like from these distant quasars that happen to hit gas clouds. Quasars are pretty rare. If we have a telescope as powerful as Louvoir, with its massive mirror, with its incredible light-gathering power, with the novel instruments that are going to be decades more advanced than anything on Hubble, or realistically a decade or two more advanced than anything on the still-to-be-launched James Webb Space Telescope, we might be able to not just use quasar absorption, but galaxy absorption. We might even be able to do astronomy based on what these gas clouds emit, rather than just what they absorb. What can we learn if we can take those steps rather than just doing quasar absorption?
1: Yeah, that's right. That's one of the most exciting things that I can think about as somebody who works in this field because as much as the, the quasar absorption line technique has given us, it's fatally flawed in a, in a special way. When we use quasars as background light sources, they are very, very tiny dots on the sky. The emitting region of, of, of light from the quasar is really, really, really small. And so when the light comes through a distant galaxy, it's only going through a very tiny bit of that halo of that galaxy. And we lose any and all information about how the gas in that galaxy is spread around, whether or not it's being mixed up by galaxy mergers, whether or not it, has, it is not a sphere, whether or not it's shaped in weird ways. We lose any and all of that information because we've got a single pencil beam coming through the gas. But with a facility as powerful as Louvoir would be, with its ability to see extremely faint light sources, we could instead look for the gas in emission. We could look for the atoms re-emitting the light that they're absorbing from the extragalactic background and actually see the ghostly halos of galaxies in their gas. And when we do that, we can compare it directly to all those wonderful simulations that we've been building up over the decades for how galaxies mm-hmm. form, how they take their gas and turn it into stars, how they spit that back out, and all the wonderful 3D information that's encoded in that material. We can't do that today, but with a, a facility like Louvoir in space, or maybe the 30 meters on the ground in specialized cases, we can actually go after images of the 3D structure of the gas surrounding galaxies. And that would be an amazing triumph observationally and theoretically because we can finally test all those theories of galaxy formation that we've been building up over the years.
0: And one of the most fascinating things for me about that is is when we start looking at what is a distant galaxy like, you mentioned that with Louvoir, if we build a 15-meter version of that 15-meter diameter, we put it in space, and we start looking at the distant universe, we can resolve things down to 60 parsecs Per pixel. And 60 parsecs, if I'm doing my math right, is right around 200 light years. So the Milky Way, which we think of as just a relatively typical modern galaxy, if you were to put the Milky Way at any distance at all in the universe, instead of showing up as maybe a single pixel, which is what it might show up with, which is the resolution it might show up with today with Hubble at at the you know smallest Uh, angular distance you could put it at, we would be talking about, with a galaxy 100,000 light-years in diameter, we'd be talking about 500 pixels end-to-end, which would be enough to make out things like spiral arms, which would be enough to make out things like individual star-forming regions, which would be enough to make out things like galaxy rotation curves for every galaxy in the universe.
1: Yep, it's 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 really exciting. I mean, we 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 like to use tricks for distant galaxies today through strong gravitational lensing, which is a whole field in its of, of itself. But if you know anything about strong gravitational lensing, um, and you know about what the galaxies look like with that, every galaxy on the sky in the distant universe would be resolved. As good or better than the galaxies that we get by happenstance chance with gra- strong gravitational lensing today. So it's going to be an extremely powerful tool. But you know, along with such power comes great responsibility or at least great danger um, because of, of, of something that, that kind of makes me smile when I think about it. Which is Olber's paradox, and and if, you know when I when I teach cosmology or when I used to teach cosmology, I would always start with Olber's paradox, and, and the paradox goes like, why doesn't every why doesn't every patch of sky on the night sky shine as bright as the surface of a star? Because if the universe is 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 just filled with with uh, stars and galaxies throughout, then every sight line on the universe should 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 land on on a star, and it turns out. The solution to this, this, this paradox was that, you know, the universe is, is not static and stuck in time, um, that is, it, it's expanding and evolving throughout time such that, you know, we don't just immediately land on the surface of a star. Um, when you have a, a telescope as, as powerful as something like LUFAR, you, in a very, very long integration, something like the length of the Hubble Deep Field, a million seconds, you're looking at galaxies um, which are so faint that eventually all of the pixels in your image will have parts of galaxies overlapping on. We're going to become uber limited instead of magnitude limited, which could be kind of fun.
0: Yeah, and that's and that's crazy because when we. When we do our simulations of structure formation in the universe, when we say, okay, here we have all the galaxies that we expect to form, and here's what things should look like, Um, and when we compare it to the Hubble Extreme Deep Field, which is a region of sky where we've taken a total of about 23 continuous days of imaging in a variety of wavelengths, we see only about 8 or 9% of the total number of galaxies we expect to be out there. Even when we look at a region of sky so small that it would take 32 million of them to cover the whole sky, and we look at that with the most powerful space telescope we've ever built, and we look at it continuously for almost a month, we're still seeing less than 10% of what's out there. So when you talk about a telescope like Louvoir, you're not talking about less than 10%. You're not even talking about 50%. You're talking about getting more than 90% of all of the galaxies out there, aren't you?
1: Yeah, something like that. And, and, and a fun a fun fact is to invert that. That Hubble Extreme Deep Field that you mentioned, the 23 days of continuous viewing, Louvre would do that in about an hour and a half.
0: Yeah, and and not only would LUVOIR do it in that much less time, it would have a wider field of view and would actually get more of the sky than Hubble was capable of at once, wouldn't it?
1: Well, actually, lo- the way that Louvoir is designed, the imaging cameras will have approximately the same field of view. We, we made that decision early on to basically be going after a style of, of telescope, an F-ratio of telescope that provides about the, the, the same field of view as Hubble, you know we can co- contrast with something like the W first telescope, which has a hundred times the field of view. So Louvoir was focused on going after you know depth and, and, and signal to noise and not necessarily wide fields.
0: OK, and that's really just a decision because it would have been a trade-off then to say, well, if we want a wider field of view, we're going to have a trade-off and that trade-off is going to come in the form of resolution.
1: That's correct.
0: So we said, okay, we're getting W first in the 2020s. That's the NASA flagship mission that's already been selected with a tentative launch date in the middle of next decade. So for the 2030s, s, which is one of the four finalists, along with Habex and OST and um, I forget the rival of Athena, the uh, the X-ray. Lynx. Lynx, thank you. Um, but... But those four finalists are all candidates for exploring the universe at the next level, the next flagship mission of NASA for the 2030s. And LUVOIR is by far the most ambitious one. It's talking about building a telescope so large that unlike James Webb, there's no way we could fit it in a single rocket. We would have to actually launch it and assemble it in space. Unlike James Webb, Louvoir, as I understand it, is designed to be serviced. So it would actually be able, unlike James Webb, to have its instruments upgraded. Because like you said, once you throw your telescope in space, It's presumed that, yeah, like what you've got in space is what you've got to work with. But with something like Hubble, which was up in low Earth orbit, we were able to send astronauts up to switch instruments out, put new instruments in, and actually upgrade it. The Hubble we have today... Um, the instruments there are some some 20-some-odd years younger than the instruments it was originally outfitted with. And with Louvoir, we're talking about not only a vision for a new type of space telescope, a whole new class of space telescope, we're talking about doing it in concert with crewed missions, C-R-E-W-E-D missions, to go and service it out there at the L2 Lagrange point.
1: Yeah, so so that's mostly right. I, there's 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 one thing I should clarify, which is the size that we chose for Louvoir was actually limited to be contained in the largest launch vehicle that we can imagine in the twenty thirties, something like the SLS Block two. So it is still a single launch telescope. It wouldn't be assembled in space, but you're absolutely correct that we intend on it being serviceable in space, whether or not it be by crewed missions or, or by robot missions or some combination of the two. We want to leverage what we learned with Hubble. We want to leverage the longevity that you gain with uh, being able to service, and you, we want to leverage the ability to upgrade the instruments or ask, ask different science questions entirely with Louvoir. So we intend, much like Hubble just hit a quarter century, we intend Louvoir to be something like a, a, a half-century facility for for looking out at the distant universe because of its serviceability and um, because of its great size and flexibility.
0: You know, Hubble's been going for 28 years now and it's still going. So to say for a telescope that's going to be 40 times as powerful and have another 25 times better instrumentation to give us a total of about a factor of a thousand improvement over Hubble, it seems like 50 years is is not just like, oh, an optimistic pie in the sky, let's do this. It seems like, no, actually, we've got a track record that shows if we build this right, this might actually be what we're in for. And so when you talk about unveiling the mysteries of the universe that we didn't even know might be out there to look at the 90% of the universe we are we know we're missing even with our best observations today and to characterize all the faint things all the all the interior properties of galaxies that we have no way of probing today, it seems like that is just a scientific windfall that would have been unimaginable to someone even a generation ago.
1: Yeah, I think that you have it exactly right. The, 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 the way that I like to think about it is as follows. You know, in 1969, there was there was a small paper that was presented to the National Academies on why you might want to build a space telescope. And this this was one of the bedrock documents for what led to the Hubble Space Telescope. And the science questions that they put in there, and the science questions that they were asking of Hubble when it launched in 1990, are not the science questions Hubble is doing today. Exoplanets were never in there. Exoatmospheres were never in there. Dark energy was never in there because none of that science existed yet. Those questions had not even been asked theoretically in some cases. So Hubble is doing science today that it was never envisioned to do when it launched. The same has to be true for, for any future flagship facility. We have to be able to build them flexible and powerful enough to be able to do the unknown science of a decade after it launches, of two decades after it launches. We don't want to build... A flagship observatory that can only do one thing very well. We need Swiss Army knives in space that are upgradable, that are extremely powerful, and that would be worth it to keep up there for that long.
0: Oh, that's good. I let you get your plug in for Louvoir. So I do want to say that of the Potential missions of the four potential missions, the one that that I often hear pushback on the most for Louvoir is that it's also likely to be the most expensive mission. And even though we might get better, more revolutionary, higher longevity science out of it than we would out of any of the others, that's the number one claim that I hear from the proponents of the three other missions is that, well, Louvoir is too expensive, and that if we push for Louvoir, people might pull the plug on NASA flagship science in general, especially after the cost overruns that have already happened with James Webb Space Telescope. And I don't know if you were intending to talk about that but I wanted to ask you if you had a message for people who were maybe hearing that and what you would like them to think about instead.
1: Well, I can address a couple of things in a couple of ways. I think the first thing is, is that there is, a, there is a subset of the community that is concerned that flagships in general, because of the experience with Web or various other flagships, um, that flagships are going to eat away at the rest of the missions. And by and large, that's demonstrably not true. What flagships tend to do very well is delay other flagships. And we're seeing this with Web now, and we're seeing this potentially with W first. But what I would take away from that is that that means we have test cases from which to learn. We can learn from the mistakes of how we were building Web and how we're continuing to finish the integration and test of Web to show you how to better manage the product pro- project right how to better manage the engineering the integration and test, so that it doesn't get drawn out like that but there's also th- i think to me a much more fundamental question and the much more fundamental question is do we want to always limit our aspirations by what we think we can afford because Oftentimes, scientists are the last people in the world who should be thinking they understand how budgets work or how they are going to be limited in future budget senses. Every time I've ever worked with people on on the Hill in Congress or in any of the spheres in D.C., the the fundamental thing that I get back from them is tell us a good story, give us a reason why it's important, and then we can figure out a way to fund it. Now, am I saying that means we can just ask for anything we want? Most certainly not. In fact, all four of the mission concept studies right now are doing a much better job than any other flagship mission concept study in history, in NASA, at understanding the technological barriers, at understanding the technological risks, at understanding the science program. All of these things are much, much more thought out than any flagship we've done before, which means we know going into it what... The problems may be in a much better way, and we can try to route around those problems. And we're being realistic with LUVAR. We were told to go in as big and bold as we thought, but we stopped at a certain point saying that you know we could try to, to space-assemble a 100-meter telescope, but that's not practical or reasonable for the technology of the 2030s. So we've spent a lot of time looking at that trade space, to try to, ma- to to try to maximize scientific output by minim- and minimize the technological risk will LUVOIR be more expensive than some smaller telescopes absolutely but that isn't the question we should be asking the question we should be asking is what is the science per dollar that you get out of the facility you know Hubble space telescope over time, has cost well over $15 billion, $20 billion over the lifetime of the observatory. Was that $20 billion worth it? You're damn well sure it is. It's been one of the most successful pieces of scientific equipment, one of the best scientific endeavors in the history of humankind, right? And it's been able to answer some of our deepest questions. A facility like Louvre would carry on that tradition it would let us continue to be as bold as we can possibly be scientifically and from my perspective what it requires is a little bit of courage and a little bit of fortitude a willingness to see beyond some temporal mistakes right now to learn from them and to apply them going forward to try to do the the impossible science of our dreams right now and but to but to to, to have something which is realizable and feasible and something that we can do and something which would benefit not only the astronomical community but but really all of humanity because we've been talking about distant galaxies with LUVOIR and this is a different discussion for a different time but LUVOIR is almost tailor made to look for life in the universe it's going to be able to find biosignatures in the in the atmospheres of nearby planets and really go after some Deeply fundamental questions on the exoplanet side, too. So in, it's, it's carrying the mantle of Hubble into the 2030s and beyond, and it's personally something that I think is, is worth the investment because it's going to return on investment handily.
0: Yeah, and I think I think that's a wonderful point that really often gets overlooked. I I think about investing in something like a space telescope of a type we've never built before, of a scale we've never built before that's going to have the versatility, the utility and the extended lifetime as something where you have to look at, hey, this isn't just what is the upfront cost? This is also about what you get out of it. For me, it's really no different than the first time I ever bought myself a really good pair of hiking boots. I was appalled initially that I was spending almost $300 on a pair of full leather hiking boots. And over the lifetime of those boots, I had the soles resold twice, and they lasted me for about eight years of wearing them every day. And when I looked at that, and I looked at what are the other less good shoes I could have bought, for 40, 50, 60 bucks and how long would those have lasted me I not only got a better experience out of getting the better shoe, it wound up costing less and giving me more in the long run. And I think that Louvoir is exactly like that. If we wanted to say oh I want to find the habitable exoplanets and I want to study galaxy formation and I want to know what the light element abundance is and I want to see how ultraviolet light evolves throughout the course of the universe and I want to study the Lyman." alpha forest and i want to etc etc do all of these things that this one telescope can do i would not only get an inferior result by building a suite of smaller less expensive observatories i would wind up paying more overall for that less good result
1: yes that's that's absolutely right but i i, I want to temper that slightly by by saying the following which is that Louvoir will not exist alone in the 2030s in the same way that Hubble doesn't exist alone today and James Webb and W First won't exist alone in the 2020s um, We we envision Louvoir as being part of a robust portfolio for NASA We don't intend to build Louvoir at the expense of small missions uh, By way of example, you know if I consider what Kepler has given us as a smaller mission it has been transformative, absolutely transformative, as small missions often find new, completely new fields of study and discovery. Space: the Swift mission finding gamma ray bursts galore; Kepler finding exoplanets, etc., etc., etc. And those small missions typically point us in the direction of wanting to build flagships to help address that science. So when we build LUVAR in the 2030s, it is hopefully part of an astrophysics profile at nasa that has small and medium missions with it because we're going to be able to need to be finding those new science sectors that only Louvoir will be able to answer the questions that they tee up it's not going to be a Louvoir alone and and that's another important thing for the community community to understand is that that we want to maintain the robust profile of, of small, medium, and large missions that we have today and just carry that forward, carry that legacy forward to, to, to enable the best discoveries and to maximize the best science.
0: And I think that's a that's a great way to, to end this, is to look at not only what can this one mission do, but what can we do with the full suite of resources and the full suite of investment we can make? What can we learn about the universe? How can we push this all forward? And how can we better understand how we came to be in this universe and what else is out there and what our place in it is? I think it's a wonderful melding of humanity's ambitions, humanity's knowledge, and our quest to learn ever more about the universe. Thank you, John, for joining us here. Do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share? Just
1: remain ambitious.
0: All right, well, we will make sure that we do. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. I'd like to thank everyone who made the Starts with a Bang podcast possible. Thanks go out to all of my Patreon supporters at the $5 a month level and above. Thanks go to Robert J. Hansen, Samir Kumar, Aaron Weiss, Matthew Rummel, John Van Balaguyen, Dominic Turpin, Tim Graham, John Methot, Pavel Zuzelski, Thomas Sola, Denier, Frank, Pedro Texera, Igor Mitrofanov, David Jens Kroger, William Barr, Laird W. H., Daniel Nadasi, Eric Brown, Mark Armstrong, Jose Enrique, Sean Foley, Elver Sosa, Flo, Richard Jousy, D. G. E., John Kozura, Marcelo Barnaba, Rafal Wojcuch, Danny, Alexander Marius, Gajin, Andrew T. Douglas, Chris Hilly, Jason McCampbell, Weller Tractor Salvage, Frederick Y. Martello, Pierre Franson, Dick Pills. Joseph Dvorak Henna Kahn Andrew Jason Charles Buchanan Mark Langston David Krompotic Randall Slimak, Jerry Wilterding Tom Van Scotter Michael Lewis Mike Ahmed Lee Comsey Jeffrey Kidd Dana Bridges Kelly Kudrick Richard Schwartz Darren Redfern Mark Bloor Nick Delroy Fraser Kane, Steve Shaber, Naked Bunny with a Whip Kevin Barnes Patrick Dennis Radek Nesbida James Nance Sydney Atwood Nathan Hanna Tomas All, Glenn Mc. McDade- David, Benjamin Turner, David Taschioni, Philip Raddulovic, John Seal, and Braxton Thomason. Thanks for tuning in, everyone, and I'll see you back here next time for more starts with a bang.